0: depths of the eldritch conjuration were deeper in any of our worst most tentacled nightmares these dark yawning depths were like a maw gazing into the skittering mind of the betrayer gods and there on its rim stood we four wide-eyed fools ready to hurl ourselves into the maelstrom to come with no sense of chaotic destiny to cool us or warm us in the frigid burning of Norwegian Rain. Rain. Oh, boy, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Hey, greetings, program show buddy Ingrid Burnall here. Hankerin' Fernale, back with another episode of the RPG Mainframe as the. Intro suggested, if you could call that an intro. I don't know what that was. So it was just, uh, how's a little piece of crazy? Actually, the reason that I did that little piece of crazy hopefully will become clear over the course of the episode. I was trying to make a point and then I found myself so lost in madness <laughs> that it, it took on a life of its own. And, um, maybe that makes the very point that I'm going to be trying to make it, uh, here today. Hey, welcome. It is Episode 64 of the RPG Mainframe podcast. We are chilling in this quarantine life. I hope everybody out there is staying sane and safe and healthy and all that good stuff. Loving thy neighbor and whatnot. And episode 64 has started and stopped, has been created and destroyed several times. And, you know, it had a lot of different, uh, what could you call them, seeds and no theses. And and over time, what I started seeing is that this process of thinking there was something decent to say and realizing it was just a bunch of jarble, and then thinking about it and working on it and reading a little more, thinking there was something to say, realizing it was jarble, <laughs> thinking about it some more. Instead of that just being uh, a bunch of frustrating going in circles, that in itself was a form of the very point of the podcast. Now you got to stay with me on this one. This one might get a little heady. So the pieces that I wanted to bring together in episode sixty four uh, are kind of like this. First of all, I wanted to talk about Wild Mount, and I'm a huge fan of Wild Mount, so we have that in one one bucket. Then in another bucket, I wanted to talk about essentialism, and this is sort of the art of preferring one really good thing over like 10 sort of poorly thought out things. And then finally, I also wanted to talk about this experience of thinking you're making a bunch of things and realizing one of them's good, (laughs) sort of on accident, not all 10 of them. And which one of those that is like, how do you make that call? And how do you see that? Where do you get that clarity of vision to write down 10 cool ideas and actually be like, you know, nine of these are lame, (laughs) but this one's really cool. And where does that, that wisdom and that control come from? And so as I tried to harness these topics, I kept trying and what I thought to be failing, I kept thinking like, this just doesn't, I don't know, you know, like, uh, you know, and the more that, um, you guys, the shield wall, sort of give me this praise about um, the RPG mainframe as new people join Patreon. It's like, oh man, your podcast, you know, really cool and inspiring. It, it does put this tone on it of like, I don't think this sounds inspiring. <laughs> and that's just that a hole, jerkwad, self critiquer talking, who is like my least favorite voice inside my brain, which we all have it. And it can be frustrating. So it's just like, this isn't cool or inspiring poop on you. You need to go back to the drawing board. But what I didn't realize, and here we go. Finally, after four minutes of pure garbledygook gook, what I like about wild mount, the concept of essentialism and the process of finding the good in a sea of mediocre, they're all exactly the same topic. Dun, dun. Okay. So let's. Break it down piece by piece, and hopefully it will start to emerge both why I'm excited about Wild Mount, what it means for us as fans of D&D, and then also sort of the lessons that are, at least for me, were hidden in it. Now, I, I'm not the sharpest tool in the drawer, so it takes me a while. You know, I can't get a new book. I mean, these books are like, you know, what, 250, 300 pages, right? The, these are weighty tomes. So I can't get the book and then like four days later, you know, someone's saying, hey, can you do a review of this book? I'm like, no, that's a capital N. No, I can't. It It, it takes me time to... To read it, to give it up, to set it aside, to come back to it, to sit with it, and then to try to use it. Like, I really don't believe that RPG books are for collecting or for reading. They're for using. They're like, they're tool sets. And that, I think, is where you really push the content to its sort of limit as far as its quality. And and that took me a while. I got this book five weeks ago. And... A lot of the forces in my current campaign are steering us toward Wildmount in some strange ways that my players have kind of, in some ways, aren't sure about, but in other ways are like really curious and kind of want to go find sort of the root root cause of the calamity in our sort of hacked Eberron world. And that is... Well, just to, to you know, lay it on the table. In our Eberron world, Wildmount is a lost continent, like Lemuria on Earth or Atlantis on Earth, and so that's sort of part of how our story is evolving. But Mount to me is so exciting because I've been using it in direct tandem with Eberron. So if I'm making a new monster or if if we're going to a new location and I want to have at least a little bit of like canonical. Lore about that location I need to flip through the book, right? And so I'm simultaneously using both of those books And it, it's given me a unique opportunity To deep dive both at the same time Which I normally don't really do Normally I'm kind of invested in something But this time I'm seeing them in parallel And it's made me really, really like Wild Mount. So why? Quit saying you just like it That's not useful for the RPG mainframe This is a thinking machine This isn't just an opinion podcast. This is a a place where we come to think critically and extract tools from our opinions and our feelings to get better at what we do, which is be wicked-ass game masters, right? Even in the age of quarantine, playing online with your friends, it asks us to be just as creative, just as energetic, if not a little bit more so, because, you know, this sort of at-home life can be a little bit of a vampire on on our energy. And so we face these same critical thinking challenges. So why is Wildmount good? And my answer is quite simple. And it is uh, something that was mentioned on Discord earlier today, which is that Eberron is a beautiful game world. I really like it. I mean, the Warforged alone are worth Eberron being part of D&D. I love the Warforged. I had always looked for ways for like mecha type creatures to be in D and D and Eberron and battle chasers are the only solutions I've ever seen that are really elegant and cool. So the Warforged are worth it right there. So that's Eberron. Eberron is great. It was also made by something that I, or someone that I know personally. And so that's exciting and like, wow. But then Wildmount comes and the difference here is the voice Eberron The book, and this is from the original book up to now, is spoken in a very big voice. You know, Keith Baker, the primary author of Eberron, has a very cosmic voice, almost a Galactus-like imagination. He has a, a, a colossal imagination that thinks in these extremely large factions, events, and even cosmic bodies that are influencing each other to boil down toward this sort of last war moment. And this is the moment of canonical Eberron, right? And it's this very complex quilt of underlying force. And and these forces are titanic. And it takes time to really appreciate, I think, the poetry in how big Eberron is as a concept and how it attempts to boil itself downward into this sort of noir intrigue, which is its sort of um, stated kind of mission. You know, it's a it's a nuanced, complex, and in some ways postmodern world. It's brilliantly thought out, but this is a Galactus-like imagination or voice, and voice is the key word here. Wild Mount could not be more different in its approach. Now we all have different opinions on Matt Mercer and Critical Role and its effect on our hobby and its its sort of part to play in how the hobby is being 21st century right? And there's a lot of opinions in that matter. But one thing that everybody agrees on is that Mercer is a delightful dungeon master, both to watch and to think about how he must be creating his content. If you've even watched a little bit of Critical Role, which it really is worth watching at least a little bit, maybe even like a highlight reel or something, you'll know that Matt Mercer drives a lot of his game through caricaturization. Now, granted, these are voice actors, on critical roles. So, so, of course, characterization and in in character, in voice role play is going to be a big part for them. You know, not a lot of us can do what they do, let's just face it. But that's not what matters for what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that that methodology and that skill set that he has comes through in his voice. There's that key word again his writing voice sounds and feels like how he DMs, which I think is just brilliant. And I think the sign of any good writer and an uh, an aspiration for all people that write is that you can almost hear the person saying the words as you read them. That's a good sign of honest, pure, energetic writing. And Wildmount to me has this property. And so now we get to this big Sort of juxtaposition with Eberron, which has this Galactus like voice, this cosmic voice, the big think, the top down thinking. For me, Wildmount and Matt Mercer's voice are the exact opposite. They think a game setting up one person at a time, one character at a time. And this is what I love about the Wildmount book is that it really is substantive when it comes to individual people, individual people that you could put into a session and role play with your players to build dilemmas, to build moral imperative, to build tension, to build dread, to build hatred, to build revenge. Those things for me are hard to build based on geopolitical comprehension but they're easy to build based on what one person says to the players. Now, for an example, in my current campaign, I have this sort of jungle queen named Kala who wears like a sort of a cheetah, like tiger outfit (laughs) and has like twin daggers and is like a master of the jungle and is the only reason her people have survived is her courage. And she meets the players and, and answers them at first with ferocity, but begins to soften and, and, and actually needs their help. And when the players are enamored with this character, I I have them. And then we can start to build meaningful tension and meaningful goals in the game. And all of this, Besides what the players are doing is just me being one character, one individual human being <laughs> or elf or dwarf <laughs> and to me, Mercer thinks this way in Wildmount. There are a lot of other things to love about Wildmount the formatting and the the art is innovative, the whole world feels like. Uh, it feels like a and d world that a little bit has been done, but now is alive again. And it just proves that just because something has been done, like we've all made a DD and d continent, it can be done again and it can be great again. He also just, the, the tensions between the nations and the areas feel really easy to comprehend. The linkage between the map and where you want to read the information you're looking for feels easy to find. Every section has adventure hooks toward the end, which are briefly written and have really cool titles, which just make you want to make that adventure. This stuff seems obvious, but it's in very few of the newer Watsi books. But of all these benefits of Mount, that I just really like, it also just has a modernness to it I just freaking love. It has this bottom-up feeling of building a world one person at a time. And who that person is and what they're needing and wanting and how you could role play them in a, not a text wall, but, you know, in maybe a little paragraph. And you you feel that person, you think to yourself, I could role play that person. I could make a session around this and I could pull my characters in, apply my trap theory, right? I can use this character as the bait and I can pull them in. And then when they least expect it, we're confined, there's no way out. And then I spring my danger. And I just find it, in that regard, so damn usable. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. It it is fantastic. And you guys know me. I've been really disappointed with almost all of the 5th edition books since the Monster Manual came out. They just have not worked for me as usable books. But this one is different. I'm going to be living in this book and wearing out the spine. And I look forward to being disappointed with the quality of the glue. (laughs) Okay, so that's the first piece of the podcast that I wanted to get through. Why I like Wildmount so much, why it's so human, why it's a bottom-up vision of a world that feels like a usable acting tool almost for me, rather than a cosmic definition of a still amazing idea. So that's the first part. And I thought, okay, there we go. Podcast done. Wipe the dust off my hands and put my tunic on and head on home. Wait a minute. That, that didn't feel like RPG mainframe quality level. That that just kind of felt like, hey, guys, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> RPG mainframe is a thinking machine. So that's an example of a podcast that I would try to put together and throw out. Then this next idea occurs to me as I'm moving through all the different projects that you guys are going to be seeing coming out here um, in the beginning of may essentialism and nowhere is essentialism more important than in software development. Now I know that that just seemed like you just got hit by like a giant piece of foam bacon and knocked into the mud on maximum extreme challenge or something right. That was, that was a jarring switch, but in software development, when you have an engineer or team of engineers, an artist or team of artists at your disposal, and you're going to create a software experience, you have so much power, so many options, so many features are available to you. And for me, one of the real skills that I brought to my video game career was essentialism. It is boiling all these possibilities down to one almost irrational level of focus to one irrationally important idea. And if that tiny little one thing isn't just nailed, isn't just a plus plus quality, nothing else will matter and and especially if you're working with a team of people to make sure everyone stays focused on this essentialism this this one thing is a constant battle because smart creative people are constantly seeing fascinating options and unfolding capabilities but the essentialist says no No, no, only the one thing. We haven't got it perfect yet. Only the one thing. Well, what about all this stuff? What about all this stuff? What about all? Nope. Until this one little tiny mouse click is perfect, we cannot move on. Now, this may seem somewhat tyrannical, (laughs) almost borderline delusional when working with a, 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 a team of skilled people. But I have to say, as me and my secret team of developers have been building the Runehammer virtual tabletop software, it has been our guiding light and our saving grace to be absolutely brutally essentialist. And you know how I got the evidence on this? It was when my engineer came back to me and twisted it on me. I was bringing in something that was outside the essence. And he said, Ho, ho, hold on, dude. We can worry about that later. We still haven't got this yet. And I was like, oh crap, that's how it feels. <laughs> that was intense. <laughs> you, just, you just gave me some of that tussin. You're letting that tussin soak in. I was just like, dang. But the lesson from having essentialism flipped on me like that was not, oh man, this, I am a tyrant. I am delusional. It was the opposite. It was realizing this is a good creative practice. It doesn't mean that the essential, the one, is the only thing you get to make. It's just make sure you nail it before you move on. And I really think this applies directly to the creation of tabletop RPG stuff. And here we go. This is where I'm going to start to bring this together a little bit. I think Mount does this. Wildmount in a way sort of lets a lot of questions slide off the table that a lot of people are going to have. It doesn't answer every question and it only gives you just a little bit. So in a way, it takes this essential stance of being like, we're going to do this one little piece of land, but it's going to be not just overly detailed, but usable. And until it does that, it doesn't do anything else. Now, I don't want to use Eberron as my punching bag here, but Eberron tries to hit us with four or five huge continents and leaves so many questions unanswered, you kind of have to wonder a little bit why those other continents are there. Well, it's a planet, and planets need multiple continents, right? Well, yeah, but you haven't necessarily given me everything I need on the biggest one already, the main one, Corvair. Like, I'm not sure I have a, a really an easy command of, you know, how the Bree land fits into Corvair and like how it relates to, you know, Drome. I'm not quite sure I'm familiar with that yet. It's a little hard to grasp. Well, yeah, but also there's a whole nother continent. <laughs> you see how that's not essentialist? Now, is it cool? Hell yes. Is it fun to read? Yes. Is it creative? Is it brilliant? Yes. But it's not essentialist. And I think more and more in these past weeks, and putting it into episode 64 here, that essentialism is a big part of what gives us usability. And this is where now I'm starting to find my way into a meaningful podcast. Focusing on doing one thing really well before doing all the rest makes that one thing really usable for the person who inherits it, the reader, the GM the dungeon master. And here's where we come to the third part of the podcast that's so clutch, which is I'm looking at 10 things. I have 10 continents on my game world that I'm creating. How do I know that these nine are not even needed? All I need is Wildmount, right? I feel like Wildmount itself as a continent is smaller than Corvair, which is one continent on Eberron. Now, someone out there might be looking at the maps right now and have me off by a few hundred miles, but just by feel. So how do you decide that? How do you make the call? If all 10 continents sound cool and you're getting ready to really lean in on this, you're creating something, the scale of Wild Mount, which a lot of us have done as game masters, even just as hobbyists. We've totally done this kind of work, building factions and background and history and key characters, monsters and different cosmic forces that are affecting uh, the monsters and the stability of the world. We've all done this kind of stuff. So how do you take 10 things and strip them down to one? And here I have to look backward to a sort of principle that I've talked about in the distant past, and I have to now use it as a guiding light to answer this almost impossible question. And this is quite simply knowing what you want and being honest about it. I have seen so many game masters build expansive game worlds because they think there is some kind of expectation of what it should be that it should have a snowy part, and it should have a jungly part, and it should have a, a coast with jagged rocks with a shipwreck in it. Because, you know, d d worlds have those things. But to me, this can be missing the essential want that you have. Now, you may want 10 things, but you have to sit down and you have to be honest and realistically say, I only get one. So I want spaghetti, I want sushi, I want a cheeseburger, I want french fries, I want a Green Lantern Big Wheel, I want, let's see, um, Gravity Boots, I want an infinite supply of Sharpies, I want a Dr. Pepper, 12-pack of beer, and Hot Fudge Sundae. I need to honestly look at this list and just be like, what do I really want here? Now, it's a little easier with these sort of gag items, right? I mean, obviously, 12-pack of beer. (laughs) I can survive without the rest. (laughs) It's easy with those kind of gag items, but when creativity comes into play, you get all this brain baggage about what you're supposed to do, what somebody else did, what's been done, what feels original, and what feels rehashed, right? You have all these little demons that are nipping at you as you're trying to be creative and telling you it's it's not good enough or it needs to be more innovative or needs to be weirder. And then you wind up with a 700 page book because you put all 10 things in and it's extremely difficult to use. And you've created 30 years of content, which really people only probably want to play your book for maybe a month or two. (laughs) Knowing what you want is a huge part of being creative, huge, huge. Another great example is this recent TV show that I love called Dispatches from Elsewhere, which we started getting interested in because A, we're in quarantine and B, it's filmed here in uh, Philly where we live. But actually it became interesting on another level, which that the sort of central character is forced to ask himself what what he really is interested in, what he likes. And he finds it to be a soul destroying question that he can't answer. And I think this is a, this is an honest way of looking at this problem. And and toward the end of the show, I can't tell you what he sort of finally writes down on a little pad in the final episode, because that would be spoiling, but I can say it's very little. It's very, very little. It's underwhelming in a way, but then, and this is the joy of that show. I really recommend watching it. He leans into that. He takes it at face value. He, he says, Okay, that, that isn't much, but if that's what I want, then there is the root of my essentialism. And there's my path back to the first two parts of the podcast, right? Thinking from the bottom up, thinking in usability, thinking in doing one thing brilliantly before, before doing nine more things with mediocre attention. Uh, so So that is how you choose. That's how you choose from that list of hot fudge sundaes and cheeseburgers and sushi. And unfortunately, all the things you don't choose, you have to accept this creatively are left by the wayside. Now it's not the only path, but it's the path to that essentialism. And the reason that I'm, sort of portraying this as being so important is that that essentialism is what makes Wild Mount so intriguing and so usable as a source book, which if you ask me for five years, I've been waiting for Wizards of the Coast to produce something like this. And the beauty of it is that they kind of went outside their staff, so to speak. They, They tapped a new kind of voice. And I really think that voice is overdue. And I hope this podcast not only helps bring it to light, but shows us some of the lessons of boiling something into something smaller and tastier and leaving lots of it on the table for later. Instead of thinking, here are all my ideas, here's everything. Oh boy, you're just going to be amazed. But if it's just one tight, small thing and you execute it with brilliance, then maybe, just maybe, you can have a hot fudge Sunday after your cheeseburger. All right, you guys, thanks for tuning in a lot. This has been episode 64 of the RPG Mainframe. This one was a real difficult, this is like eating a big bowl of grape nuts. You know, I really had to let it soak in the milk or I was going to crack a tooth. And, and that's what I did. I just had to let it soak in the milk. And, you know, also quarantine comes with its own creative challenges. And so I hope that this analysis of Wild Mount. And your experience with that book gives you some of these same lessons that have been inspiring me to bring focus into my game creations. You guys stay safe, stay healthy, keep it real. Don't steal. You're always going to get a deal. Strength, honor, and beer. Those three things will never let you down. I will see you guys on the internet until next time. This old Ingrid Bernal, your buddy, Henkren Fernell. Thank you all to my, my shield wall on Patreon. It's ever-growing. It's absolutely amazing. Welcome and thank you to all of you. May your dice roll high. I'll see you around.